0: If you've got your Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, and a couple familiar verses, verses 21 to 23. And I don't intend to give you a full exposition uh, of this text. Rather, I just want to pick up on the theme. Uh, There's obviously a major theme that Jesus is bringing out here. Uh, And obviously, the theme is what it means to be a Christian. I I just, just want to talk. To you about that this morning. What does it mean to be truly saved? This is such a vital question today. I mean, I think you know um, that we live in an age of increasing confusion, increasing deception, even in the church. And perhaps the greatest point of deception in the church at the moment is this question of who really is a Christian. Who really is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? I mean, when the church starts affirming homosexuals who love Jesus, quote-unquote, as Christians, uh, we're in trouble. Uh, that, that's an era of just gross distortion. And, and then coming on the heels of our conference a couple of weeks ago, so I couldn't help but think that still... Many, many churches, uh, that there are those in those churches that make experience the test of their salvation. That was clear uh, in what Terry was saying, that you you have those who objectively uh, would test their salvation uh, by the word of God. But then there are those subjectively would test their salvation by their own experience. Or their feelings, for that matter, or whatever that means. Or the mood they they get themselves in when the, the music puts them into it. So this is a crucial issue. Uh, that this this is can't, I, In fact, I don't think there's any other issue that could be more critical, perhaps any time. I mean, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus preaching it as a whole, that, that's the issue he's dealing with. Who and who cannot... Enter the kingdom of God. Right? That's, that's the whole thrust of this sermon. And he blatantly, directly says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And those were the most religious people on the planet. So what's the test? What are the the tests? Or even, maybe we can broaden it a bit. What are the signs of true salvation? As I said, we need to be clear about this. I mean, eternity is at stake. People's souls are at stake. Your soul is at stake. What are the true signs of salvation? What are the, the evidences of true salvation? And here in our text, categorically speaking, Jesus reduces it down to just one. We could talk about signs, plural, but here in our text, Jesus gives us, categorically speaking, just one. One sign, one evidence. Let me read the text and see if you can pick it up. Start with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now the Bible's a big book. you got an Old Testament, New Testament, 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New But what I just read to you arguably has to be the most tragic and terrifying verses of all of Scripture. How would you like to think that for your whole life you thought you were going to heaven only to get to the gates and not be let in? I can't think of anything more tragic. I mean, listen, knowing you are not going to heaven, not interested in going to heaven, and then not being surprised that they don't let you in, okay. That's one thing. But here, you have people that we might call have false assurance. They think they're going in, but it's false. And again, the tragedy is that you think you're going to heaven, but in the end you're not. We don't want to be deceived. And by the way, you notice that this, this um, group of people, Jesus says, are many. Many are in this category. Many are religious. You, you note that, right? And, and this is many Christians, people who are doing things in his name. We're well, not talking about Muslims here. We're not talking about Jews here. We're not talking about Hindus here. We're talking about quote-unquote Christians here. People who go to church. Many people who think they are entering the kingdom of heaven only to be denied by the Lord of heaven Himself. I mean, they had their securities. They had their assurances. I mean, they they re, they reply back to them. Lord, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. I mean they they had their little repertoire they had their little lists. I mean they were putting their confidences in particular events, particular uh, experiences, uh, even in their own education. They had a lot of stuff I mean remember that was the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 he was putting together his little list to show you know Peter or whoever's at the gate saying I I I can come in because this is what I've done. And then here yet for all their quote unquote stuff Jesus points out that there is only one chief and main criteria for real and genuine assurance. And the question is what is that? Did you catch it by the way when I read it? Three words. My Father's will. The will of my Father. In in other words, that's not what you did, but that's what you should have done. In other words, you look over your life and you ask yourself this question. This is the most vital question you'd be asking yourself right now. Am I characterized by this one thing? And what is that one thing? Am I doing Jesus' Father's will? And what is that? One word? Obedience. You catch that? Obedience. Or, Or to put it in the Apostle Paul's words, Am I zealous for good works? obedience, obeying God, obeying God's Word, submitting myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we can reduce it down to one sign, one evidence. Again, it's not the perfection of my life, but it's what? The direction of my life. Do I have a desire to obey God? Or as I read earlier, can I say with the psalmist, remember what I read earlier from Psalm 119, do you have his heart? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. For your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded. I love your your law. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Can you say that? I mean, there's a specific thing going on there. There's a specific and particular passion going on there. You come back to Jesus' words here in Matthew 7. Uh, you need to take that as a warning, by the way. When he was offering that Verses 21 to 23, to those immediate hearers on that day on the mountain. Yes, you could say it was instruction. Yes, it was exhortation. But altogether, it was a warning. It was a warning. It was a warning not to be deceived. It was a warning not to be fooled by false assurance. It was a warning not to put your hope in anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. What were they putting their confidence in? Ah, we were prophesying, we were casting out demons, we were performing many miracles. Does, does, Does that sound like experience? Don't put your assurance in experience. Don't put your assurance in external things. You say, well, what is the evidence? What is the evidence? By the way, I I couldn't help but throw this in. When Jesus gave those words on that day, on that mountain, and remember he was specifically talking to his disciples, I I thought, well, did the disciples get that? I mean, some of them wrote letters. Do they basically say the same thing jesus said that day and of course they did and in particular jesus is in our three peter james and john all three of them subsequently that wrote letters address this very subject of assurance of salvation james you remember says in james 1 22 prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves who deceive themselves how do you deceive yourself well you hear it but then don't do it You're here this morning and you hear it. It goes through one ear and out the other. You walk out that door and it doesn't do a thing for you. You might get moved emotionally and you might get inspired, but there's no real faith that anchors you down. Remember James also said, faith without works is what? Dead. Works. Good works is not the root of our salvation, but it is the what? Fruit of our salvation. It's the evidence of our salvation. It shows that you have true faith. Now, Peter gets on this as well. you to Turn there in 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So your trials are in your life and you, it's rocking you. It's shaking you. shaking your faith. And he says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full and, and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In other words, you're, you're in the midst of trials. Trials are there to, to rock you, Right? To test you. That's what a test does. It tests whether you truly believe what you believe. It's an assessment. I've learned all this stuff about God over the last whatever months. Now I've got to take a test. Do I truly believe He's good? I've been told He's good. I've been told He's sovereign. I've been told He's wise. I've been told He's benevolent. Now I'm going to take a test. And the trial comes in your life to really... Do you believe that? And Peter says, Well, you passed the test. Passed the test because... You're obeying. Of course, John John gets on this as well, not just James and Peter. Remember I said the disciples got this. John says, by this we know that we've come to know him. How do we know that we've come to know him? That, that's, that's the question. How do you know if you know Jesus? If we keep his commandments. Mark it, 1 John 2, three. And by the way, that word keep, Keep speaks of a watchful, careful, thoughtful obedience. It doesn't just include the act of obedience, but the spirit of obedience. You keep it. Just like psalmist. I keep it, but I, I want to keep it. I love to keep it. And then John follows that up in 1 John 2, 4. The very next verse he says, The one who says, I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Again, you you can't get any clearer. Obedience. Obedience. You walk like Jesus walked. So you, you, you sit here today and you say, oh, I'm a Christian. But you don't walk like he walked and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. You are a liar. You're deceiving yourself. And you need to know that. So again, all, all three apostles were concerned that true believers would have real confidence of salvation. We, we, this, this, this is the minister's job to let you know whether you, whether you know you have true salvation or you're deceiving yourself. I mean, the minister's job is to, is to give true believers that real confidence of salvation or to expose you as a hypocrite, as frauds. So, w- w- with all of that, let, let me give you a, th- a few things to think about. I just jotted down a, a number of things that I see as um, what the Bible says as signs or evidences that mark true conversion um maybe this can be a time of examining yourself uh, and use this list to see if indeed you can call yourself a Christian all right I'm going to go through this pretty rapidly I I, I don't have a few I've got um, quite a list here We'll see how far we get but but here are the 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 signs the marks of true salvation you start with obedience but Let's flesh that out a bit. Number one, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Could I be called a Christian if I had a preoccupation with spiritual things? That that marks a Christian. True spiritual things. I mean, we've got to put a footnote on everything today. But preoccupation with spiritual things. or Preoccupation with the spiritual disciplines. Discussing with a few guys the last few days about spiritual disciplines. Now, we can say it another way. Are you spiritually minded? Now, all of that means that you're born again. I mean, this is where you have to start, right? You're not going to engage in spiritual disciplines. You're not going to be spiritually minded. You're not going to have a preoccupation with spiritual things unless there's a spiritual life in you, right? Ephesians 2, he who made you alive. What does that imply? You were dead. You were spiritually dead. And thus you had no interest in spiritual things. Can you think before you were a Christian? Did, did did you ever open up a Bible? Did you even grace the door of a church? Did you even think of God? No. But all of a sudden, your eyes are open, your heart's exploding you love the word of God. You can't get enough of the word of God. You want to go to church. I remember when I was a Christian sitting in the front row. I couldn't every service I couldn't get enough. There's this preoccupation, preoccupation. Again, not perfect, but but there's enough there to say I'm spiritually minded. I have the fear of God. I, 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 I died to self. All I want is the glory of God in my life. All my thoughts are above. All my thoughts are heavenward. I mean, you get the point. So that's number one. Preoccupation with spiritual things. Number two. Number two, you have a... a and some of these are overlapping with each other, but I'm singling them out. Number two, you have a penchant for truth and righteousness. You have a, a, a penchant All right, I'm keeping the peace. You can notice, by the way, already. So the pension, what does pension mean? You you just, you, again, a desire. You have a desire for truth and righteousness. You are like that psalmist that says, I love your word. And saying I love for your word, I love the truth. I mean, that's what Christians are all about, right? Christians are about the truth. Non-Christians out there, they suppress the truth. They hate the truth. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, but, you know, you read A.T. Robertson's little word pictures of the, the New Testament, I love that, and, and, and his word picture that he believes that Paul is, is, is using there for suppressing the truth is like the guy that puts something in a box, he closes the box, and then sits on the box. Just out of, out of place, out of sight, not interested. That's not a Christian. A Christian loves the truth. He loves righteousness. Often somebody says, "Well, how do you know, if, you know, so and so is a Christian?" What, what is the evidence? And we, I mean, you know, something comes to mind. Well, he's, he obeys. He does the Father's will. But I tell you, the other thing that immediately pops into mind a number of times is what: Does he hunger and thirst after righteousness? Does he hunger and thirst after righteousness? He loves the truth. He loves doctrine. He loves theology. Martin Luther said, theology is heaven. Doctrine is heaven. Number three. Number three. What's a mark of a Christian? A mark of a true Christian is that he pines for Christ's return. Or, or say it in another word, he pines for heaven. Can't wait to get out of this place. I mean, are you like the Apostle Paul that says, I, I, I am sick. Uh, you can say it a couple ways. One, I'm sick of being in this, this, this body that I, I continue to make me sin. Remember he says that in Romans 7? Get rid of this thing. Get rid of this dead carcass that I'm in. I can't wait to be glorified. Where I don't struggle anymore with sin. I don't struggle anymore with the flesh. And then outside of myself, I'm sick of this unrighteous world. I'm sick of this wicked place. I long to be in a place of righteousness and holiness and truth. So you're either saying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I and mean, this is the hope of a Christian, so you're pining for christ's return that's a mark of a christian you you want you long for heaven number four along the heels of that you- per, you pursue holiness is your life marked by okay you could say it one way is your mark is your life marked by holiness and we're all you know um, What's what's the word I'm going? We're all in the progress of being worked on, right? But is our desire to get there? I guess that's the issue I'm trying to get to. We want to pursue holiness. Remember, you know, when God calls a people out to Himself, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people that He calls to Himself is for the purpose of holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. And Peter gets on the same train and says, you ought to be in the pursuit of holy conduct and godliness. That's 2 Peter 3. This is the mark of of a Christian. Holiness. Number five, uh, is there a progress in faith and grace? In other words, is there growth? Can Can you... Look at, the, you know, last year or the year before and every year do a bit of a self-examination to say, you know, I've grown this year. I've actually grown this year. I'm more mature. I mean, we're, we're called to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be conforming to his image by using the means of grace, becoming more like him. Why we're, we were saved? We were saved to be more to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans eight twenty nine. Is that happening in our lives? I mean, this is the test of something that's living. If something's living, it's going to grow. On the heels of that, number six. Praying and praising. I mean, uh, the Christian's life should be marked by praise and prayer. I said, prayer is like breathing. And that's true. Prayer is like breathing. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about not giving up. The beggar's logic. Asking and seeking and and knocking. Remember, the the word that we used was importunity. That's the the Puritan. The Puritans used that word. Look, I understand that we all know as Christians you're supposed to have a devotional time every morning or every, whenever you do it. I mean, people recommend doing it in the morning and probably morning's a good time because you get got the whole day ahead of you and you need to prepare yourself for the day. But look, there's, you can do it at night for that matter. But is there a regular time of prayer, regular time of meditation, regular time of just you and, and the, uh, just praising God? We're not legalistic about it. We don't want it to be some kind of a box that you check. I have to do it today. Check. Is there the desire to do that? You might miss a day. But is there a pattern of praise and prayer in your life? Now that's individually. On the heels of that, number seven, uh, public worship. Are you participating in public worship? I I, I have to be honest. um, The question of do you have to go to church if you're a Christian has uh, only been asked, as far as I know, in the last, whatever, five years. I've never heard that question ever asked before. I don't think anybody asked that since Acts 2. But all of a sudden, with the, the live stream... And this idea that, well, I'm a Christian and God's everywhere and I can worship God anywhere kind of mindset means that, one, I can stay home and worship and do it in my own way through the the TV or, at worst, I can do it whenever I want to. But that's not the pattern set out in Scripture. The pattern in Scripture is that Christians gather together in public worship corporate worship. I always say, you know, people say that I can worship whenever I want to. I tell them, well, no, you don't. If you are a Christian, you don't understand what a Christian is. Because a Christian not only has a right relationship with God, he has a right relationship with his brothers and sisters. There, there's, a, there's a family here. This isn't a box that we all take. This isn't some sacramental ritual thing that we just walk through the door and we've done it and we walk out. Why do you think the writer of Hebrews says, let us stir one another up in love and good deeds? There's there's an interest in one another. There's an encouragement in one another. We're all pursuing holiness. We're all pursuing being conformed to the image of Christ. And we need each other. That's part of the means of grace. When you were saved, you were baptized into Christ. By the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gave you a gift. You understand that, right? First Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. You have been given, if you're a, a true Christian, you have been given a spiritual gift. Okay? You didn't you didn't ask for it, it was given to you. It's a gift. That's what a gift is, right? Why did he give you a gift? What was the purpose of giving you that gift? Just to, Cuddle it, just to look at it, just to do nothing with it. No, the purpose of the gift was for you to edify and encourage the body. The gift was for you to serve the body, and you can't do that at home, all by yourself. The only way you can serve the body is being with the body. Now you might have to take a couple steps back and say, "Whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? Gifts? I have a gift." I mean, we, we need to talk about gifts. Find out what your gift is. And then serve the body with that gift. But This is the point. True Christians, the evidence, the sign of a true believer is that they participate in public worship. You're going to be here as, as much as you can. Because you want to be here. Because you know this is where you are equipped, this is where you are edified, and this is where you serve. This is your family. Now, if you don't like this family, go find another family, but be part of a church. Be part of a church, be part of a local assembly. Now, as I said, we gather together to be edified. And to serve one another, but we also gather together to be equipped, and we're equipped to do what the work of the ministry. And part of that work of the ministry is to walk out that door and what, be a light, to be a salt. In other words, here's number eight. Mark of a of a of a true Christian is that some point in their life, not saying every day, not even saying every week. But you will evangelize. You will proclaim to the lost. You can't not help to do that. If you know that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and that the hell is forever where somebody that will die in their sins apart from Christ, not knowing Christ, eternal judgment the wrath of God, all the images in the Bible, and you believe that, you cannot help but tell people to get out of it, right? And tell them how to get out of it. You've got children. You've got a spouse, perhaps. you got other family members. You've got a co worker. You've got fellow students. You've got a neighbor. There's people all around us who are going to hell. not do it with compassion. You, you, you do it with love. But you're ultimately, you're doing it for the glory of God. It brings God glory when you evangelize and proclaim to the lost His gospel. Obviously, we can say more about that, but let's move on to number nine. Number nine a true believer, I believe, will have pangs of conscience when they sin. I should have probably put this back earlier when I said we pursue holiness, but when we sin, we desire to pursue godliness, we desire to pursue holiness. Like the psalmist, we hate sin, but guess what? We are going to sin. The question is do you have pangs of conscience when you do sin? Are you sorry? For your sin. You hate your sin. That's a mark of a believer. You're repentant. We are going to sin. But if you persist in a particular sin with no pangs of conscience, no remorse, I think there's a serious question to be asked there. Why not? Maybe you've hardened your heart. But I tell you this, if you are a Christian, the Lord's not going to let you just keep going on and on and on. He's going to chasten you. And that's going to be very painful. Psalm 97, 10 says, hate evil, you who love the Lord. First John 1, 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, I um, every once in a while, I, I don't want to give you the impression that I watch it often, but every once in a while I'll turn on the TV and they've got like three or four, quote unquote, Christian channels, um, TBN I can't, they have named a few of them. I, I can't remember all their names. And I, I just turn it on because that that's a bit of a window in what's out there, right? It, it helps me. It helps me know what most many Christians, quote-unquote, are engaged in. And the times that I, I, I've i watched it, I obviously noticed a trend. I noticed a trend that the message is never about Christ, it's never necessarily about God and his glory. It's all about, you know, you, you the listener. It's about how you... I, I can notch you up another couple you know, steps on the psychological ladder, how you can be a better you. you, know, you you've, you've been from those churches, and you've probably seen it, so I don't have to go over it again. But uh, one of the thoughts I had coming out of that is, but even in this church, in our good churches per se, is that we need to talk more about our relationship to sin. Do we really understand our relationship to sin? I, I can get up here and say, look, you need to be a better husband and you need to be a better wife, so you, there's a relationship. And you need to be a better father and mother, so there's a relationship with the kids, and we need to be, you know, one, encourage one another, and so there's that relationship with one another. and Even talk about a relationship to Christ and our and relationship to God, but there, there seems to be missing a, a, a conversation about the, the, the one thing that we struggle with, every moment of every day. And that's what? Our relationship to sin. How do we deal with sin? And I counseled people over the years to know that a lot of people that get discouraged, if not depressed, is because they don't know how to deal with sin. They just keep falling and falling and falling and falling and they just can't get a handle over it. I believe that the Word of God has everything for life and godliness and so it tells us how to deal with it in a word mortification but then we got to talk about what that means but I just jotted down a little schematic here on our relationship to sin I don't know if this would be helpful here but the Christian's relationship to son first our relationship we need to understand is there's an acquittal we've been pardoned from sin right we're no longer under judgment for sin there's an acquittal that's a word but there's also an awareness for sin we, we, we are fully aware of what sin is now we see the sin in our own lives we see the sin in the world we, we understand that sin will be judged sin is a front to God it's a front to His holiness sin is disobedience sin is lawlessness now we know what sin is So even though we're we're, we're Christians and we're, we're no longer under judgment, there's an acquittal. We're fully aware now what sin is. And as a result, we have an attitude now against sin. You who love the Lord hate evil. Hate. There's an attitude there for sin. We hate evil. By following that up, there should be an activity We've moved from the acquittal to the awareness to the attitude to the activity. And a word, as I said, the activity is mortification. We've got to do something. We hack sin to pieces, to use the analogy of Samuel with Hagag. Or Agag, not Hagag. Agag. All of this comes back to, is there a pain of conscience towards sin when you do sin? That's a mark of a believer. Are, are you mortifying your sin? Let me give you one more. I did have 17, but we'll stop at 10. You're welcome. Number 10. Persevering through trials and persecution. Let me say that again. The mark of a Christian, the evidence of a Christian is that they persevere. And obviously, uh, when everything is going great, Then persevering is going to be natural. But when when the tests come, when the trials come, when the persecution comes, will you persevere? Will you give up? I mean, we're going through the Book of Hebrews, and we'll return to it soon. But that's that's the message: persevere, persevere. Look to Christ. Look to Him. And we always say, the worst the worst thing is the best thing. What's the worst thing? The worst thing is that you die, you're killed. And then you're immediately with the Lord. How bad is that? And obviously, James talks about this. Consider it all joy. I mean, uh, really? I mean, you might be going through a trial right now and you're saying, I don't feel too joyful. And I actually don't think that's James's point. Trials aren't joyful when you're Find that your kid has cancer. That's not joyful when your spouse, you know, gets in a car accident and is in the hospital. That's not joyful. So what what is he talking about? talking about all all that God is doing in your life through this trial to refine you and make you more like Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, the trial does what? If you are a true Christian, you're not going to give up. You're going to go down to your knees. You're going to pray more. You're going to read your Bible more. You're going to you're going to plead for God to give you more grace in your life. Those are all good things, right? But you're going to persevere. I think one of the other things that Christians need to get a hold of is not just an understanding of their sin, but on, on this point, you need to have a, an understanding of providence in their life. I, 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 do, I don't think they truly understand what it is that that are knowing that God is in charge of their life and everything that happens to them, good or bad, is from His hand. It's from His providence. And He has a purpose for them. Now, let me be quick to say, the way you persevere through the trials and persecution is not to look at the providences, but look to the promises Because you you might be reading the providences wrong, but you can't be reading this wrong. Does that make sense? This is the more sure word. But true Christians, I mean, you remember the parable of the sower. You remember uh, Jesus said, you know, the the sower goes out, the seat goes here and here and here, and it all looks good, but all of a sudden, trials come on that seat, chokes it out, and it's gone. Some say, "Uh, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. But the true Christian will persevere. The true Christian can't lose his faith. And that's that's the message of the book of Job. You can do whatever you want. God said to Satan, take his family, take his lifestyle, hurt him. Don't take his life, but you can do whatever you want with him. But will he? Will he reject me? In the end, he doesn't. He struggles a bit, yes, but in the end, he doesn't. And we're like that. We struggle a bit when trials come, but in the end, we're still here. We're still persevering. That's a mark. You know people who, who say they're a Christian and all of a sudden trials come their life and they're not here anymore. They're not anywhere. Well, what happened to them? Well, like I said, we'll stop there preoccupation with spiritual things, penchant for truth and righteousness, pining for Christ's return, pursuit of holiness, progress in faith and grace, praying and praising, participating in public worship, proclaiming to the lost, pangs of conscience towards sin, persevering through trials and persecution. How did you do? Can you, you look at that? And again... Yes, Todd. I I I am not perfect in any of that, and we're not saying to be perfect in any of that. But is is your heart and desire to be doing all that? Can you call yourself a Christian? This is the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Could I be? Could I call myself a Christian? Steve Camp, who was a singer a number of years ago, he wrote this song uh, on this theme, and I want to close with it because I thought this was good, the way he put it into song. And the title of the song is Could I Be Called a Christian? I'm not going to sing it for you, but I will just read it for you. Could I be called a Christian if everybody knew... The secret thoughts and feelings of everything I do. Could they see the likeness of Christ in me each day? Or could they hear him speaking in every word I say? Could I be called a Christian if my faith I did not show? If I did not go to places where the Lord would have me go? If I do not love his truth, if I do not guard his trust, if I cherish more than Jesus, my greatest hidden lust. To obey all he's commanded, to do all that he has said, to be his true disciple, to place no confidence in the flesh, to glory in Christ Jesus, it's he who justifies how to find your life you must lose it, to live your life you first must die, let every man examine his own life, could I be called a Christian? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning to speak on matters that are are eternal. I trust this has been clear and sobering and that everyone uh, here this morning uh, can ask that question. Could I be called a Christian? Not based on stuff that we've accumulated, not based on experience or feelings, but based on what Your Word says, what are the true signs and true evidences. Is my life marked by obedience? That's the issue. Lord, guide us by Your Spirit. Encourage us or rebuke us if necessary. Be the Good Shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.